Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered. My name is Ollie Dugmore. My guest today has had his finger on the pulse of British men's fashion for over a decade. From the suburbs of Fetcham to the front row of London Fashion Week. He served as a style director for both British GQ and Esquire, interviewing designers, reviewing catwalk shows, and rubbing shoulders with the who's who of fashion is all in a day's work. Yet, he still found the time to style A-list celebrities and consult for designer labels. With a launch party hosted by Gucci, his new book, The Closet, is a coming-of-age story told through 12 items of clothing that have shaped and draped his life. In doing so, he shares snapshots of his coming-out journey, his eccentric family, and his fraught relationship with his father, and alcohol. My guest today is Theo van den Broeke. How's Trix Theo? Oh, good. <laughs> nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to have you here. It's quite intense, isn't it? Sort of sitting and listening and I, I actually feel increasingly nervous. I don't, maybe we should start doing the intros before people sit down so that it's like slightly less stressful, but hearing your life sort of laid out oh my before God, you totally. can be quite strong. Yeah. It's like the, the kind of this is your life moment. Yes. And I, you don't really remember doing any of the things that you're talking about either. Like, Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Fortunately, you can refer, you can refer back to the book to check out if, uh, if these things did or did not happen. Yeah. Before we get into discussing all of that, how are you? What have you been up to? How does the world find you at the moment? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm very busy at Soho House, where I'm editorial director these days. Uh, yeah, that's a it's a big job. So that's that's taking up a lot of my time, but also doing a lot of book promo, which is very exciting. A little bit of a gear change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an interesting thing putting a book book out into the world. Yeah, uh, you kind of you do it. You spend I spend a year and a half writing it effectively, and then you spend as long, if not longer, getting it in shape to kind of put out. And then it's out. And it's like, if you're a writer, you put it out. You don't know if someone's read it. They could have read it. They could have hated it. They could have loved it. It could just be on their shelf. And you, they don't communicate with you. How many times have you like, messaged an author and told them how much you love their book? Probably not that many, right? Well, fortunately, I've got an hour to tell you how much I hated it. So, <laughs> no, I'll, give, I'll give you some applause now. Um, no, it's, it's great. And we're going to delve into it. And it's, you're right, actually. It's really personal subject matter. And so I guess there's all, in, this, in a way that perhaps... You know, if it was fiction, you would perhaps, the, if there was any criticism, it'd still be personal. But when it pertains so directly to your life, it's very difficult to, to receive any kind of criticism, I guess, and not interpret that personally and not interpret it because it's so much of it is who you are as a person right on the page. Yeah, totally. And I mean, touch wood, I've been quite fortunate thus far that there hasn't been anything mm. scathing far a few early comments from my family, um, <laughs> which I'm sure we'll come to later. Um, but yeah, there hasn't been, actually now you say that, there hasn't been anything kind of outwardly negative. Mm. I'm praying that there won't be, because you're right. I mean, it is, it's a very um, febrile thing. It's like I've, I've put out this little piece of my soul into the world. Mm. And when I was writing it, I didn't think about that really. It was just, it was almost like therapy. It was like, I just have to get this down. I have to do it. 
whether it's published or not, and by some quirk of fate it was, and then it's like, oh God, it's it's actually out there, mm-hmm. and you are exposed. And you know, my best friend Lauren, who's who's written about extensively in the book, she's one of the main characters. She said to me throughout the process, she was very careful to say, "Hey, it's amazing, but you have to be prepared. There will be people who won't like it. There'll be homophobes who are anti it. There'll be people who just think it's a bit rubbish. Then mm. you have to be prepared that by." taking an artistic leap, so to speak, you run that risk. And I kind of said, yeah, 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 Lauren, yeah, sure. And I haven't listened to that at all. And the moment that someone says something negative, I'll probably crumble. (laughs) I have to stay in bed for three weeks, but currently it's okay. I wonder as well if, you know, going from being the journalist, the reviewer, the the critic on Mm. occasion, and the shoe now being on the other foot, has it changed your perspective at all, perhaps, about some of the work you've done in the past or whether or not, I guess, yeah, I'd be interested to hear the comparison between being the one who does the critiquing and then being the one who possibly receives it. That's an interesting question because I think, yeah, you have to be really, really careful when you're criticizing work mm. in a journalistic sense or, or in any sense, I think. And actually, you know, I got into fashion journalism very young and there was this kind of cult around the idea of being mean about work and that somehow made you better at criticism mm. you could find the most scathing way possible to say something negative about a collection or you know a shoe you you would then somehow venerated and actually there's a real responsibility i don't think that's the case anymore i think fashion criticism has gone a certain way for many reasons because of social media or whatever like people just don't read as much fashion criticism as they used to and they make their own minds up but i think you know, if you are in a position of power and you have a standpoint from which you can decimate someone, you have to think very, very hard before you do it. Because ultimately, you know, that is a piece of their life that they've put together, you know, whether it's a collection that's taken them six months to produce and then, you know, five minutes to show or a book that's taken a year and a half to write. You, you know, it's all about context. And so much of criticism is really what you're saying is, I didn't like the timing of this thing because everything's relevant at some point. Yeah. Like everything has its moment and sometimes just things are released at the wrong time. And yeah, sometimes things are rubbish. I don't really know what I'm saying there, but I some, what you're saying. you know what I mean? And yeah, sometimes things are just objectively not very good. Mm-hmm. But and that to some, has to be said, right? And it has to be said, but to some people it is going to be good. And I just think, I just think what I'm trying to say is that you, you have a real responsibility when you are taking on the role of a critic. Mm. Before we get into the the meat of this, um, our producer, Laura, one of the first questions she's written uh, on my sheet here is to ask you for a bit of advice for me about how I've styled myself today. I was in two minds about asking this question because I feel like I'm, particularly in the light of the conversation we've just had actually about sometimes you do have to be a stern critic. It was um, it was a clever way of uh, of preempting this question. Exactly. I, think. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about it. Um you, and actually, as well, there are there are audio listeners only. It's not all, it's not all video. So, as you critique, if you if you wouldn't wouldn't mind critiquing how I'm dressed today, if you could also be descriptive about what I'm wearing for people that are listening, I'd be very grateful. Sure. So um, Ollie is wearing a <laughs> sage green corduroy um, jumbo corduroy shirt with a white t-shirt tucked into some faded indigo slim cut jeans with some black uh, leather hiking boots, I guess. They're like red wing kind of boots on, red wings, yeah. on white Vibram soles. Um, I would say, partly because you're wearing a similar top to me, I'm wearing a teal corduroy jacket. Um, we're quite complimentary of each other. So I'm into the I'm into the cord. It's very seasonal appropriate. Thank you. You know, you've you've gone into the autumn vibes. It's it's layered in a way that allows you to take it off if it gets too warm, which it could at this time of year. Um, the colouring is very good on you as well because you've got a kind of sandy um, complexion and the sage is very, very good against the colour of your hair. So points for that. Um, I think your trousers are great. Lengthwise, they're just about right. They could maybe be rolled up so that they kind of kiss the top of the boot Ooh, like just that. to give it a little bit of a, a personalization. Style it up, yeah. You know, style it up slightly. 
Um, the boots are good. They're quite worn in. You could probably do with a new Vibram sole on those. I think I probably could. Um, but but generally, I'd say you're a you're a good seven and a half out of ten. Unreal, <laughs> unreal. Should we just finish there? <laughs> That's not how I was expecting that to go. To be quite honest with you, um, thank you so much. God, it's very kind. I was I was smiling. Oh, good. I was. I had a be- I had a beam on my face there. Um, okay, disregarding the very nice things you've said about me. Um, what brands, trends should I be wearing right now? Where are we at at the moment in terms of men's fashion? What's in? I'm a bit nervous of trend. Okay, yeah. I've, like, I've, I've, you know, I think I spent a long time in my career, you know, the biggest job that I had to do each, each season at, at GQ was having gone to the shows, then distilled down everything I'd seen into these big trend reports. And effectively, they're telling people to buy new stuff that they don't need from very, very expensive brands. Trend is fun. It's mm. great. It's silly. Like I love the idea of buying something new because it's just for the sake of it, because it looks like this kind of great confection that you want to kind of be embraced by for that that moment. But when trend is encouraging us to buy more for the sake of buying in a kind of ecologically challenged world, I have a little bit of a concern about that. Which isn't to say that there aren't like movements that you can buy into that feel somehow uh, not problematic in that sense. So things like, what did I write? I wrote a column about this recently. I need to try and remember what it was. Oh, okay. So cardigans, but specifically button up kind of nano cardigans. Mm. So they're, they're high collar. And their crew neck and the buttons go all the way down the front in kind of pastel shades. Prada showed a lot of those. Um, Our Legacy had a couple, as did um, Gracewell's Bonner. And they're great as a kind of layering item. Mm. You may already have one in your wardrobe or your girlfriend might. Or your mum or your grandma, actually, for that that matter. So you could go shopping in their wardrobe and then you're not buying anything new. Uh Um, I would also say that, what's another good trend to be getting in on? Boucle. Oh, yeah? The boucle has been big in furniture for a little while now. You've probably seen it everywhere. So much so that it's all over HomeSense at the moment. Like it's kind of reached its end mm. in furniture. And boucle basically means like loops wool. So it's that very loop fabric that Chanel used in all of her early collections. Um, and it's a, everywhere in menswear at the moment. So whether it's a boucle jacket, like a little kind of collarless jacket that they um, showed at Dior or a boucle suit, which is effectively tweed. Um, Boucle is the fabric for winter. Wonderful. Glad to hear it. Um, so this, this might be a bit tangential, but you've just you got me thinking about this. I often, looking at kind of um, digital influencer economy and the kind of pursuit of, you know, let's say I call it hauls or, you know, people buying huge amounts of clothing. And I'm quite conscious on a personal level I haven't given given this like a huge amount of thought, so I might be entirely wrong here, but it feels to me that there is a tension between there is a tension for fashion and for and I mean that in all all aspects, not just high fashion, I mean, you know, sort of more consumer, probably a little bit of fast fashion and the sort of more accessible price end of things. Mm. And a world a world that is trying to be increasingly sustainable and is trying to move away perhaps from, you know, a slightly more consumerist, more materialist mindset. It's a, I don't, it's quite broad, open-ended, but I'm, I just wondered maybe your thoughts on that. Like Huge tension. Okay. There's huge tension and it's massively problematic. You know, the, the amount of, the amount that the clothing, the, the global garment industry contributes to global warming is shocking. Like the statistic, it's something like 10% of all carbon emissions are created by the global garment industry. You'll need wow. to check that. But it's huge. And you know, our habits aren't changing. Mm. We're, we're spending more and more, like we, I think there's some, again, it's another statistic, so I don't, I don't have specifically, but we have something like 20 unworn garments in our wardrobes on average. Again, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, annoying, yeah. I don't have that to hand. But, right. but we have a lot of unworn clothes and we just buy for the sake of buying. Mm. And there, there is a huge problem with that because invariably these are cheap clothes that are not made of natural fibres. So they're releasing microplastics when they're washed and then when they're discarded, they just go into the landfill and it's it's creating a massive global problem. So we need to buy in a way that's more considered. We all need clothes. Like there's no question about that. But maybe it's buying less, but better. Mm. And that's more satisfying too. And, you know, it's a difficult conversation also to have because 
for a certain facet of the population, buying expensive clothes is not economically viable. And, and that's, that's its own issue. Um, but for those of us who have the privilege and the luxury of being able to choose how we spend our money in a kind of um, thoughtful way when it comes to garments, we need to be thinking more carefully and not buying for the sake of buying. And really buying seasonally because you need to buy for the weather, but not buying trend, dare mm. I say, because that's where the problem lies. We feel we have to adhere to this constant movement and churn, which funds the whole industry and keeps it moving, but we, we don't. Ultimately, we don't. I, um, oh yeah, I agree with you. I, I agree with you fully. So let's turn then to the subject matter of, you, it's over your shoulder, but your, your wonderful book. Yeah, that old thing. Perfect, that old thing. <laughs> the closet. Um, I've seen that cover far too many times. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Um, and probably a fair few signings, etc. as well. Let's talk about you and the journey that the book documents. Mm. And so without wanting to seem too Freudian about it, we're going back to your childhood yeah. um, and your sort of pubescent years, if you will. First of all, and, and uh, your pubescent years and sort of particularly in relation to your sexual orientation. Mm. So first of all, could you tell me a brief overview? What, was, what, what are your sort of formative memories about growing up? What are the first things you remember and, and how they made you feel? Well, one of the, the original memories I have that is charted in the first chapter of the book, in fact, and was where the kind of idea germinated from, was wanting this blue princess dress. So the first chapter is called the Blue Princess Dress. And I was desperate for this thing. It was part of my grandma's dressing up box at her house in Isha in Surrey. And my cousins and I, you know, there were 15 of us from six aunts, all of whom were very similar, but also entirely different and kind of mad. And we'd be in that house every weekend and every weekend we would open that dressing up box and interrogate its contents and all come out wearing weird and wonderful things. And the, the blue princess dress was the one thing that everyone wanted to wear. I think the boys too, as much as the girls. And I knew that I loved it and there was just something about it. It was the gauziness, it was the drama, it was the the fabric, the the little jewels that were on it that made the light shine um, on the ceiling in a way that, you know, just felt magical. And I was obsessed with it. And it wasn't just that dress, there were other dresses. And I just, I felt excited by the idea of the kind of possibility of wearing those clothes. And it wasn't, I don't know whether it was maybe slightly because they were illicit and they felt that like they were naughty. I don't know. But but it was, there was just something really glamorous about it. Mm. And I, on my birthday, on my sixth birthday, which is when the book is set, I try to get this dress. My cousins get it before I do. There's a whole fight to get it. I get it. And then I'm shamefaced for wearing it by my male uncles who I do not blame for this. I didn't know any better at the time. Um, but, you know, I, I remember feeling, I remember that hot feeling of shame because I'd been wearing this dress. And it was like the first of many, one of maybe a better term, microaggressions that I experienced as a young man um, that told me what I wanted to do was not right and was somehow not societally acceptable. And whether that's wearing a dress or being into playing with Polly Pockets or not wanting to play football, which was a big thing. You know, my mum had to give me um, a thing of silly putty to play with on the sidelines because I didn't want to play football at school. And I hated it. And, you know, there were so many, and that was seen as a problem. It was like, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't mm. you want to do that? Um, less so by my family, more so by, you know, my peers at school and teachers. And that built and built and built until, you know, I reached my early teenage years or my mid-teenage years and kind of came to the re realization that I probably was gay. And I wore this kind of straight armor that I'd built in response to these microaggressions as a badge of honor. So I presented as quite masculine and big and, you know, and I didn't do any of those things anymore. I still love the Spice Girls for a bit, but I didn't do any of those things that signified as being um, more feminine. And, and it, didn't, it took me until I started writing the book to realize how wrong that was and how damaging it was and how it kind of creates this split 
in who you are because you're told throughout your life that what you are fundamentally is wrong. It's okay if you adapt and become what you should be as long as you do it enough, but fundamentally you're wrong. Mm. And that was, that realization was the moment where I knew I had to write the book. I wouldn't know. I'm sure, in fact, I'm sure you probably weren't at six years old, particularly conscious of a gender binary and trying to subvert no. it. But I don't I, think I was until about three years ago, to be honest. But So, <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to ask this, but I wonder if, do you think it was um, subversion for subversion's sake to, to sort of to cut a different path and not perhaps being able to put your finger on a why, but knowing that you wanted to do it? Mm. Or, or, and if it wasn't, at what point do you think you maybe sort of your consciousness about gender, sexual orientation? When did that start to change when you start to become more aware of that? It definitely wasn't subversion for subversion's sake. I was so young. You know, it was just an instinct. Mm. I was just, I mean... The thing is, I like, of course, I was attracted to the big blue gauzy cupcake dress. Like, who isn't? Yeah. You know, like, I, I, the straight boys were too, of mm. course. Like, why would you not be attracted to that? We're told we shouldn't be. Um, so I kind of think of myself as quite brave for actually admitting to it when I was that age. But yeah, but, um, but yeah it, was, it was definitely not a, um, I wasn't being subversive for being for subversion's sake. But, I I think about the in terms of my consciousness and my sexual orientation that kind of raised when I was about thirteen or fourteen, right. and I think that I may be imagining this, but there was a moment where that Vogue two thousand October two thousand cover came out. My mum used to have this like little shelf in the upstairs toilet that had all the magazines on it, and this magazine had been relegated there, so it was probably Christmas two thousand, and it was Robbie Williams with his bum out, and then Giselle in a um, Union Jack bikini. It was like peak Britpop. And I knew I fancied him and not her. And it was like a real choice, right? Yeah. It's like there's a cover. A, I'm looking at Vogue, which probably tells you something in and of itself. And it was Robbie that I was attracted to. And at that point, I, I kind of knew. And, and I was scared of it. I was scared about this idea of not because you're told you're not able to be happy as a gay person you're told you're going to get aids like mm. at that age when i was that age that was the the pervasive storyline that that's what happens you know and so i conflated this idea of like being who i was and loving clothes and you know all of this stuff that had been told was wrong when i was young with suddenly this thing that was like oh god okay that's why i'm different and then it all seemed wrong you know, mm. it all seemed like it's this kind of this negative that you should be veering away from. Um, and it, in a way, it didn't really stop me. Like I carried on wanting to be a fashion designer. I wanted to be an artist. I kind of stayed in that world. But like I say, it kind of all percolated later into this realization that there had been this massive tension in my life and that I wasn't really feeling like I was able to be who I wanted to be. Did you find a degree of positive representation? Were there any sort of role models or or people that stood out to you at that time that were gay or that sort of helped you translate how you were feeling? Because what you were saying then about AIDS is, you know, the majority of any kind of conversation about it is negative or inspires fear and puts you in a fearful place. That obviously is like a really difficult thing, particularly as a as a as a young man who's got all sorts of things in his head, let alone, you know, something so foundational as the very nature of you are yeah i mean it's a good question and actually weirdly i haven't massively thought about it but no i didn't you know mm. i actually really didn't i had there were 10 other gay guys in my year when i was like 15 so they i was the last one to come out and they were all quite camp and quite demonstrative um so in terms but so we weren't really friends and i probably distanced myself from them because I was nervous of being conflated at that time, which I feel kind of guilty about now, I guess. You shouldn't. Um, no, but you know, you're a, you're a kid on you, so yeah. you don't really know. But in terms of like adult role models, it's really difficult to think of any. It's really difficult. Because if you think the people that were on telly, for instance, at that time, was Dale Winton, who was a bit of a laughing stock. He was a bit of a clown, you know, which was, which is like my parents used to laugh when he was on screen and, it wasn't because of him being funny. It was because he was this kind of like court jester figure, really. And then you had Graham Norton, who kind of subverted it in his own way, which was which was smart and clever. 
but it lent into that kind of promiscuity, kind of naughtiness mm. conversation, which I was kind of nervous of, obviously because of the AIDS fear. Um, and then you had stories about people being outed or which just again suggested that it isn't okay to be gay. Mm. You know, there were no, like no actors really. There were no gay films that you could watch as like a young person. Um, and you compare that to now, like there are so many like amazing talented people who are gay and openly gay and in the public eye and speaking their truth about it. Um, I'm, I'm speaking about this because I'm trying to think of someone and I, I honestly cannot think of anyone. I can't think of anyone. I mean, it's quite brutal to be, to be honest with you, isn't it? To not yeah. have even a singular figure, right? To have yeah. someone to either help you listen to what they have to say about something, help you navigate the feelings that you're feeling because if someone has spoken about them before, right? You can go, oh my God, that's exactly how I feel and you can, you can take comfort in that, right? And interestingly, the, what, you, what you said about promiscuity, right? Because mm. uh, you mentioned in the book... Um, Attitude magazine and the kind of I'm I'm interested in exploring the sort of um, the spaces that were accessible, the places where you could find, you know, ways to explore the fact that you were gay, being places that were perhaps slightly more sexually provocative. And I wonder whether you think there's what the consequences of that are, or or if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, in terms of discovering your sexuality as a young person, you know, in the in the days that. I was in my teens, you know, it was the fledgling days of the internet. And as a consequence, like my parents didn't know how to manage it. And I kind of was learning quicker than they were. I had a young plastic brain at that point. And it, um, and it meant that, you know, I was going on chat rooms and I was accessing things like Gaydar and fitlads.com or net or whatever. And it wasn't so much magazines cause it was, you know, like MSN and those kind of sites started when I was about 14 or 15. So I had access to this world, which was suddenly there, but very, very, very underground. Like it was very seedy, like people didn't have pictures. There's a real fear that you thought you were going to be outed. I had a couple of instances where I, where I kind of was outed to people because I'd met up with someone from a school that my friend was at and they'd told them and it became this whole thing. And, and by being pushed down and, you know, you're, you're pushed underground, it becomes illicit. Right. It becomes something dirty and something wrong and my own you know i'm not embarrassed to say that my own relationship with sex has really been on the journey because you know when you are told that your desires and what your sexual experiences are are dirty and wrong it's very difficult to unlearn that mm. it's very difficult to go into then having a loving sexual relationship which is about mutual respect and trust and openness and being open um, and yeah, it has an impact. I mean, it was fun. Like I was really young and I had access to this like secret world that my parents didn't know about, put myself in some situations which were really risky in retrospect. Um, but it was really good fun. Like, mm. so I don't, I don't so much regret it. Um, but you know, it, I wasn't like my friends or peers who were able to have relationships at school, for instance. Mm and try relationships on for size when they were 14, when they were 15. Didn't have any of that. Yeah. I didn't have my serious, first serious relationship until I was like, I would say 22 probably, wow. you know, and that's, that's actually quite early. Like a lot of my gay friends didn't come out until that age. Right. I came out at 15. Mm. They didn't come out until that age. So then, you know, you're, you're at least 10 years behind everyone else. And I certainly felt that. I feel like I've not found my footing with my own relationships until very recently. And, and that's what happens when you're, you're held back by having to be clandestine. Mm, yeah. One of our previous guests, Maurice Gorhan, the comedian, um, was previously a sex worker and she talked about this. I mean, I, I will do it. I'm almost certainly going to sort of bastardize what she said because mm. she spoke about it very eloquently over the course of an hour. But she, she was talked about how she really struggled to move from being a sex worker and actually enjoying it, enjoying the kind of the power dynamic, enjoying making money out of it and almost feeling slightly guilty and ashamed for, for feeling that way, mm. stopping sex work. And then she struggled to associate sex with kind of this being the thing that you do with someone that you love. Mm. And that previously it was just kind of a bit of a rush. Yeah. And now it only being a thing 
that you do with you know people that you have emotions for. Not always, but most of the time. And struggling to transition, she actually she quite struggled with that transition between those two things. I'm sure. I'm sure. Just to be clear, I definitely did not do any sex. Sorry, I wasn't implying it. I wasn't implying it. No, no, I wasn't implying it. I was just saying the themes. That no, there's I, a common no, I theme. Hear, totally hear what you're saying. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it is that. It's like you're, it, you're forced into the shadows, mm. right? And whether you're a sex worker, whether you're a kid who's not allowed to be who they are, like you're forced into the shadows. You're forced to believe that you're wrong. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's, a, there's a, fu- a funny anecdote in the book. You were talking about the internet. Um, obviously digital and, and sort of... the. <laughs> Modern technology now is is far removed from where it was back then. But back then, printers had quite a large role uh, in in how uh, this anecdote keeps coming up. I'm sure, <laughs> well, for good reason. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's best if I just sort of get out of the way and let you tell the story, perhaps. Um, so basically, I yeah, I was using the computer. I think I was only about 14, and my dad had this like shrine of a big desktop computer in the study, which was next to the kitchen, and it was just enormous. And I had the dial-up modem, and mm-hmm. you know the printer was equally enormous. Do you like, still remember the noise of the dial-up? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to. Yeah, <laughs> um, I had like a printer that was the size of the computer. It was like it was an iceberg. It took like an hour to print out a color page, and. Every time I would come home, my mum would usually be, she was studying to do a degree at that point, and my dad would be flying, he was a pilot, um, often. So I'd come home in the evening and there wouldn't be anyone there, which was amazing. So I would go online and, you know, either go and chat to people or I got either on MSN or otherwise, uh, or I would look at porn. And this is, you know, I was very young and it was very softcore, mm. um, but still. And I um, had one incident where... I would regularly print out pictures and save them and like fold them up and put them in this plastic fake book that was like a box that I'd been given by my parents for Christmas. You've got an example up there um, that I'd been given by my parents for Christmas. So I'd hide these pages in the book thinking that no one would find them despite the fact that my parents had given me the book as a present. Feels like entrapment. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's moronic is what it is on my part. Um, so anyway, there was one morning and that evening I came back and printed out this specific picture and I'd say, right, I want this colour because it's great. And it, the person looked like Abs from Five, who I was quite into at the time. And my mum arrived home earlier than I'd anticipated, so I had to stop the printer halfway through, pull the page out, turn the computer off, leave it, run out. Mm. Later that night, we were having dinner and my dad has come home from a trip um, earlier that morning. He was sleeping, he had jet lag, and he had his roster changed and he was furious. He had to go onto the computer to check what flight he was going to be on the next day. So he goes in, logs on while I'm eating my peas. And suddenly I hear the printer jam into action. And this has happened before. The printer will pick up a job that it's been stopped halfway through. My mum had lost half her dissertation and then half of it luckily had printed out. So I knew what was coming and I just heard this sound. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So I jumped up. My mum was like, finish your peas. So I ran out of the room. And I just heard my dad was like, fuck now, Jane, what is that? <laughs> it was Dutch accent. And my mum was just giggling. And they didn't speak to me about it. Like, I had some run-ins with my dad about the computer after that. Like, I looked at porn and he'd seen it. Mm. And my sister had seen certain things because I hadn't deleted the history or whatever. Um, but we didn't run in about that. No, nothing was said. And it was kind of weird. It went silent. I never saw the printout ever again. But it was easily one of the most mortifying moments of my young life mm. which is charted in its full extent in the book 
care to read. Sorry, sorry for uh, making you relive it. No, so you can no, take really a now. <laughs> like we all laugh. My dad laughs about it now, which is good. Yeah, and I think uh, certainly most young boys. Uh, no, sorry, I think most men have a story similar to that, where like they 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 wise up pretty soon afterwards because their parents catch them the first time. It happened to me, and then you go never again. I'm never having that fucking conversation again in my life. Um, Until the next time. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk about how things move from perhaps that 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 sort of what was unsaid in that moment, right? And then when you did come out to your mum and you did talk to her about mm. how you felt and who you were, who you are. Sorry, mm. I should say that. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Your decision making process, how you felt. So obviously, it's a ginormous thing to do, right? Mm. It's a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. And I can't really speak to it because I've never had to do it. So I sort of give the floor to you to talk yeah. about it, really. I talk about this in the middle of the book, in chapter eight. It's the the, um, the Vivian Westwood t-shirt. And basically, I had been forced, forcibly outed, effectively, at school. Basically, I, I had fallen in love with one of my best friends. And it was this, like, doomed, unrequited relationship. Um... And I told someone about it at school and she had swiftly told everyone. So not only was I outed as being gay, but I was also outed that I was in love with my best friend who I spent all my waking hours with. And that relationship ended immediately. Um, and the, the coming out process was expedited to such a degree that I was kind of like, well, I have to tell my, my mum. I have to tell my parents because my sister's going to hear about it at school and people are going to know. And the person I was most worried about hearing about it, weirdly, was my sister, Romy, who, who was actually amazing and was, was great, but she'd heard it secondhand and struggled with that. But with my mum, I remember coming home. I've written about this in the book. I came home one night after it had happened and it was just awful. Again, we were sitting in the kitchen having dinner and I just couldn't stop crying and... Um, I'd kind of gone to the toilet before dinner and kind of looked at a packet of paracetamol and thought, should I? <laughs> In a slightly dramatic teenage way. Um, and then she kind of ushered my, could see I was in a state and ushered my dad and sister out of the room and, and I told her. And when I was writing this chapter of the book, I couldn't stop crying for like, literally for about four hours. It was very strange. And I hadn't really thought about it until writing it. I hadn't really, really revisited that moment. Wow. And doing so, it's like, oh my God, like, but for a young boy, really young boy, to have to experience that, to have to kind of run the risk of losing the person who's most important to you, having lost who you think is the most important person to you, which obviously turned out not to be. Yeah. Um, but the running the risk that your mum could say, well, no, you're disgusting and you're wrong and I don't want to have a relationship with you, which does happen yep. and continues to happen mm -hmm. around the world. Not only, you know, uh, you know what I mean? It, yeah, I it, ha I it happens around the world. Yeah. Um, and more often than not, probably. Um, and uh, she was extraordinary about it. And she suggested we go to Barcelona on a little mini break. And she, I bought a Vivian Westwood T-shirt, which was this floral demonstration of my new found individualism and who I was. And it took me another two years to tell my dad. Um, but yeah, it was a really, really hard thing to go through. And I was very fortunate. You know, I made a lot of new friends straight afterwards who turned out to be great friends and who I'm still very close to. So I lost nothing in the friendships that are kind of, that were lost in the process. It taught me a lot about trusting people with like things that are important to you. It taught me that my mum is an amazing person, that my family are amazing and how lucky I am. Um, and it also... I guess it allowed me to suddenly kind of feel like I could be who I was. But even though I told my mum, even though people knew, I still, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I still wore this idea of being straight acting or straight looking or straight mm. behaving as this badge of honour. And I remember people saying to me, like my, my cousin's friends being like, oh, you're, you're right for one of them. I was like, oh, thank God, you know, I've passed. So despite having come out, despite having been, you know, exposed, um, I was still fearful of being who I was. And not that I am particularly camp necessarily in the traditional sense of the word, but 
I I was still kind of hoping to pass. And again, that took another probably 20 years to get past mm. and move beyond. And I, I guess as well, an additional layer of complexity added by the fact that actually when you revisit it, you realize that you didn't particularly have a great deal of agency, right, in the whole thing. You, 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 it wasn't, you decided you were comfortable in yourself, ready to talk about it. It was like, I'm left with no choice. Totally. And, but in a way, I'm almost slightly grateful because it pulled the bandage off, right? Yeah. You know, it was like, it meant that I had to deal with it. And it meant that, you know, and, and I, I was, as I say, incredibly fortunate that my mum was as amazing as she was and my family in general were. Um, and it meant that I was then given the confidence to be open about it following that. If she hadn't been, I wouldn't have. And again, for a lot of people, that isn't the story that they have to tell. And I'm in awe of people, men, women, whoever, who are able to continue and be brave and live their truths and be who they are if they've been rejected or if they've not been accepted for, for that by the people that are meant to be closest to them. Yeah. So really, you know, like mine isn't a sob story. I'm, I'm very, very lucky and I'm very fortunate and I recognize that fully. But that doesn't change the fact that a whole swathe of the population does not have to go through like the risk of losing everyone at, at early teenage years because of some quirk of biology, nurture, whatever it is. Mm. It just seems extraordinary to me. And I'm glad that things seem to be changing. I think it speaks as well to the, the power of unconditional love, right? right. The, the, the capacity to be accepted regardless by your parents and how transformative and important that can be. And equally, without that, the, the possible consequences for people, right? The yeah. fact that your mum accepted you made the situation better, right? Yeah. Which was already a pretty fucking horrible one, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And that, that's, an, that's an extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, there, it was slightly more difficult with my dad, as I think it tends to be. You know, it, it, was, it was really fine, but he was a bit like, oh, I need to, need to think about this when I told him. And I think it was just, you know, dads with their sons, it's always more complicated. Mm. And we had a, quite a complicated relationship anyway. Um, like, he was away all the time because he was flying and there was this kind of weird tension in our house because of that. Um, but ultimately he was and has been and continues to be amazing about it. So yeah, I feel very fortunate. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about your relationship with your dad then? I mean, yeah. describes it as complicated there. I don't particularly want to put words in your mouth again. So I kind of, would you be able to explore that a little bit more for us? Yeah. So my dad is effectively the antagonist in the book. <laughs> Great. Like he, he is the, he's the monster, but he isn't as well. He's like, he's a, he's a main character. He's the, he's the, the person with whom I have the most friction. Um, and during my younger years, that was certainly true. Like, you know, he was, he was this double headed figure. He was this kind of mythical creature who was away flying in far flung locales in Harare or in Tokyo, or I was so proud of him, mm. but I was also terrified of him. Like, you know, he, he'd come home from a trip and he'd be knackered, he'd be exhausted, he'd jet lagged. And it was very difficult because we had built, me, my mum, my sister had built this little club of three that did our thing, that saw the family, that, you know, rubbed along together. And then he'd come back and be this jet lagging monster that would just disrupt that. And while that was hard for us, it must have been absolutely horrendous for him. Mm. And I didn't recognize that at all. And it's only, again, weirdly, writing this book, which is why it's been such extraordinary therapy, through writing it, I'd learned more about him. And I was able to analyze those things that I'd read at first as, dad's just horrid, to actually, no, dad was struggling. Mm. You know, and he had a relationship with alcohol that, I don't know, maybe look back on now and would say it wasn't particularly healthy. But I think a lot of people did at that time. And my, a lot of them still do. A lot of my family members did. Like, we... We all kind of, I think, saw wine as some kind of medicine <laughs> uh, to some degree. And, and that didn't help, you know, like it would certainly make arguments more aggressive and they would usually always be connected to, to alcohol, you mm -hmm. know, particularly around birthdays and Christmases, they were always fraught. Um, and my relationship with my dad kind of deteriorated until, you know, until weirdly, until he split up with my mum. Um, when I was in my mid-twenties, right? So my, my late teens to 
mid-twenties with my dad was tough. Um, and I talk about that in the book. But then when, when he split up, my parents split up, I was suddenly forced to, to reconcile dad on his own, as his own being, and to see the similarities between us and to see, see him for who he was rather than through the prism of the family context. And he stopped drinking when he split up with my mum. And suddenly we rebuilt our relationship and we have this amazing relationship now. Um, I've stopped drinking. I stopped drinking two years ago. Definitely. Following a breakup. Um, It's kind of similar. And I don't think I could have done it had he not done it first. He was a role model. He's been a role model for me in many ways. And maybe he wasn't as much when I was younger. Maybe I didn't recognize him as that. And maybe I felt a bit kind of on my own. Um, and as I've grown older, he has really become this kind of North star of how I want to be. I, he's, he's a proud kind of, um, self-possessed man who behaves well and is trustworthy. And I'm like, well, that's kind of what I want to be. And mm. alcohol doesn't fit in that equation, particularly for, for he and I. Um, but yeah, so it's been, it's been a real journey and the book is all about that journey. Um, and like I say, it was a real process of, like, I think I maybe started quite angry with him when I was writing it. I think I started feeling a bit like he hadn't taken any responsibility for anything. And, you know, we're in this situation. And, and actually, by the end of it, I was like, no, no, it's like we're, we've all got our part to play. Mm. So it was, it was a, a very public way of unraveling my thoughts and understanding of, the experiences I had as a young person. So if anyone is struggling with that, I would recommend writing a book. <laughs> it's easy. It really helps. <laughs> I honestly put such a smile on my face hearing you talk about your dad in those terms. Mm. Um, He's an ma- amazing man. Massively so. Massively so. And uh, talk, talking about, um, you talk about the sort of divorce a little bit. As someone, I experienced it as well. I was year five, so I was younger. And I was quite fortunate, I think, because of the age that I was, I wasn't really conscious of either of my parents trying to sort of use me, I don't think they were doing this anyway, but without, even with hindsight, but like use me against the other or try and, you know, change change my view of the other one. And I think they were quite quite good for doing that, to be honest with you. But it, even so, no matter what age you are, there's almost this, call it a pressure, to almost pick a side mm. or to, you know, or to take, take a particular view on things. And you're just, even, you know, when I was sort of 12, 13 years old, you're kind of like, I'd actually rather just be. This is my life now, and I'll deal with it, and I'll move, and I'll deal with it however I see fit. I don't particularly want to have to, you know. Why? Why is it up to me to decide where I am on a Tuesday night? Yeah, you know what I mean. Totally. I mean, I can't imagine how hard that must be. To be honest, like I was, my parents. I know. I mean, my mum actively decided to keep it going for us, so we wouldn't have to deal with that when we were kids. And mm. you know, they, it was a long process, and it was more complicated than that. I think that whenever your parents split up, it's a strange thing because you think you're going to be okay, particularly in your mid twenties, right? You're like, well, I don't need them anymore. Like, of course you do, but Mm. you know, I'm not, I'm not a kid. I'm not, but there's still that, like you have to split your time. You can't view them as a unit. You can't call the house and speak to both of them. You have to call them separately. Completely. And, and you are, forced to take a side in some ways i was definitely forced more to take a side when they were together which was very destructive yeah, i think and that's partly why my relationship with my dad was so difficult because as i say he wasn't there as much so naturally yeah my mum was the the right side right mm. um and in a way them not being together enabled me to kind of be more objective so interesting weirdly. yeah so interesting to hear you say that about I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but you, you could you sort of conceive of them as one thing when they're together, right? Mm. It's like my parents. Yes. And then they separate and you're like, oh no, these are individual people, yeah. which obviously they, they always have been. But yeah. particularly I think from a younger age, right? You conceive of them as just authority, parents, that's it. And then you're like, oh my God, this is what my mum's like. Oh yeah. yeah. And you start to learn much more about, well, I certainly did anyway. I think there's something quite beautiful in that in a way. I mean, there's, it's desperately sad and obviously you want your family to stay together, but like it's it was all too easy and that definitely happened when my parents were living together it was all too easy to kind of like dad's not as easy on the phone but I'll, so i'll call yeah i'll speak to mum, and i've done it 
So dad knows that I've made the effort, but then maybe we just won't speak. Mm. And then you can go for months without speaking. Whereas now, like being forced to have individual relationships, it means that you actually have individual relationships. Mm. There's no choice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been, it's been one positive out of a sea of negatives, but it's been a positive for sure. And one that I feel quite grateful for, certainly with my dad. My dad's much older, like he's, he's in his early 80s now. And he, you know, I've, I've been so happy that the last couple of years we've been so close. Mm. It's really important, I think. Can we revisit um, what you were saying uh, a couple of answers ago in relation to alcohol? Mm. Do you think your decision to stop drinking, and I know you also mentioned kind of the process of writing the book also changed the way you viewed your relationship with your father. And you touched on the fact that stopping out, stopping consuming alcohol also probably had a bearing on it. To what extent do you think they were related? To what extent do you think not drinking changed perhaps, I don't know, either your emotional picture or the way that you perceived your relations with other people? Could you talk about that in a bit, bit more detail? So how alcohol kind of changed my way to, my ability to emote. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really, it's weird, the booze thing, because I spent years just drinking. Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. you know, it was so built into the culture of what I did for a job, aside from anything else, you yep. know, like you go on trips and you'd be given endless champagne. You'd fly business class, you'd get champagne, you'd land, you'd go to a dinner, you'd get, like, it was constant, constant. And it was every day. Mm. And that, then there was socializing. And then there was my family. And it was so built into the fabric of who I was that I couldn't even see an idea of a life beyond it. There was no option. It was like, how would life exist without this? It can't, so let's just keep going. And then I had a big crisis moment um, where the relationship I was in suddenly faltered, very sadly, um, at the time. And I... My job was suddenly strange after I mean, COVID happened, obviously, and that was a big thing. My job was strange as a consequence because suddenly writing about clothes when you're sitting on the sofa in your pants is a bit weird. Yep. Um, and like many companies, Condé Nast had a bit of a, a shift. So yeah, lots of seismic changes. And I started moving house and I was writing the book. And I was just like, this, what is the, what is the thing that is making all of this hard or harder and it suddenly became abundantly clear that it was alcohol. Like, there was no escaping it. It was like, okay. And my therapist said the same thing. She was like, this is making it worse. And it, I credit to her for really helping me realize that too. And my dad, obviously, him. And we stopped on his own journey. But then I had an argument with a friend of mine, a very close friend of mine. And I woke up the next morning and I couldn't remember why. I couldn't remember what it was about. I couldn't really gather my feelings about it it had been so colored by the alcohol yeah i was like okay this is now palpably impacting it had already had been impacting my relationships but because it was so normal it didn't even register mm. um but that was a really obvious moment so i went to an aa meeting in camberwell and i was sat in this like rainy puffy face i was like really hungover, rainy kind of horrible back room of a church all these very together like marketing executives and people not what i expected aa to be in yeah well everyone was really polished um and it was quite amazing because i was like oh okay that this is what life without it looks like it kind of looks quite good and there was someone who wanted to be my sponsor there and they were like if you don't stop you're going to be injecting yourself with meth in two years and drinking guinness in the morning i was like don't think that's <laughs> necessarily true quite strong but <laughs> yeah nonetheless <laughs> i take your point so i didn't take on a sponsor i didn't actually ever go back to aa but that mm. was my turning point and i stopped on that day and then didn't didn't drink since and i suddenly realized like i looked at how i'd been in certain family situations i was arguing with my sister constantly and not being particularly nice mm. i would argue with my mum constantly and again, it was so normal. I would end up crying on friends at the end of big boozy nights. Normal. I, I've been doing it for 10 years. What's the difference? And then suddenly stopping and being like, oh God, not only do I have to confront my emotions because suddenly they're all there writ large, but actually it's manageable to do so 
because I'm not drinking was a revelation. Mm. It was also, it's a weird thing because it doesn't make it any easier. Like stopping drinking, sure, it kind of clears the decks and makes seeing things for what they are much more possible. You know, you can see your, one of a better term, demons and kind of doesn't make it easier to confront them. You know, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make it easier to figure out how to actually deal with it. And not only that, but you have to deal with it. Mm. There's no hiding, you know? And that was, you know, two years today. Two no years way. Today, not drinking. Really? Yeah. This is it the 17th today? Yeah. I think or it 18th. is. I think it's the 17th. If it's the 17th. It's the 18th. Oh, it was yesterday. Damn. Two years yesterday. Well, congratulations. Thank Happy you. birthday. Thanks. Um, and that, and it's been the most amazing, boring, <laughs> um, revelatory, uh, kind of unchanging thing. It's mm. so odd. It's I, I guess thing. part of it is, you know, you can't, you want to, bizarre like military language, right? But if you, you can't like, you can't take a shot at something unless you can see it straight, right? You know, you, can't, yeah. you know, to be able to identify, you can't confront your demons until you can see them straight, straight on. But I wonder as well, perhaps if there's, I think, I often think about um, sort of people at uni, right? And how I spent my times at uni, which was putting all sorts into my body. Mm. And same. yeah, and I wasn't the only one doing it. And I, how much of that is just, everyone says, yeah, well, you're just having a good time, aren't you? You know, you've got disposable income, you have many responsibilities, you're just out there having fun. And I wonder how true that is. I, I wonder whether it's, I don't know whether it's not something that's uniquely British, but is it a degree of escapism? Is it a degree of, you know, it's actually quite, quite um, traumatic is probably the wrong word, but a time of change away from home, hours away from home for a lot of people, right? Uh, for the first time in their lives, uprooted and struggling to deal with it. And I wondered, I don't know if you necessarily have the same view, but like, I think there's something something in there and that may, maybe or maybe isn't uniquely British. I don't know, but certainly that's how I got away from my problems. I think it was definitely substances, right? Definitely, definitely. And you look back at it, you're like, of course, ultimate escapism. Yeah. And I think back, you know, to the to why I liked drinking so much. Like, what was that feeling? Mm. But you don't just get a high. Like the high is connected to an emotion. And it's like, for me, it was about liberation of emotion. Right. It was being able to share my feelings. That was the thing that was almost addictive. Because it's like, I don't feel capable of doing that in a way that feels safe or allowed mm. without it. And that was my... That was the thing that I was craving. That was the high that I was seeking. That was the out that I was searching for, which eventually ended up with me just crying all the time. Um, and I think, I don't know if it is uniquely British. I do think we have an issue, men particularly, British men have an issue with expressing their emotions, yeah. managing their emotions. I certainly did. Mm. Like I had no idea how to manage my emotions. And, and as a consequence, you mask them, you push them down, you hide them. And if you're going through something even more challenging than just living, like coming out or dealing with society, not being happy with who you are, it compounds it, mm. you know? And there are problems with addiction in the gay community, just as there are in the straight community. And it's so normalized, it's so laughed at. It's so like, oh, you know, silly person, like, that's that's just what people do to cope and like even the fact that memes exist about normalizing like everything normalizes that escapism uh -huh. and it's so not normal yeah it's so not normal that's it's so damaging completely you know oh what would you like to do with your pals well we go and probably about six pints on a tuesday night and i like doing it because for the first time really i can talk emotionally you know i talk openly about my emotions and then if you actually stop and you go okay so that's how much at most you should be drinking in a week in yeah. the space of a few hours yeah. and you're saying that's the only time you actually talk openly about how you feel that that's not good unpack that yeah yeah totally to totally it's crazy yeah and that that thing about being allowed to talk openly about your emotions it's like we don't we don't get taught how to be emotional in the right way i don't think we don't mm. get taught how to like understand and unpack how we're feeling and to to actually be empathetic with one another like it's a really key skill mm -hmm. and you know like if you want to be really uh, what's the word mercenary about it it's kind of important in business as well yeah. like eq um 
and we're just not taught how to do it. And the idea that you have to then give yourself like a two day hangover, which anyone under 30 is a thing <laughs> after six pints um, or a three day hangover that matter. Like, and you have to do that to get to that point. I mean, yeah, uh, something's got to change. And it does feel like it is a bit. I have to say, like the next generation, like in the magazine world, particularly in the fashion world, all of the younger guys who are coming up, the, they would look at the boozing behavior of my generation and the generation above and they'd be like, what? Yeah. You're going out to dinner on a Tuesday night and getting absolutely hammered. Yeah, what's going Why? on? Why? Yeah. You're not even with your friends. It just doesn't, it doesn't register in the same way. So, you know, I think there is something shifting. Mm. Definitely something has shifted in terms of the Gen Z relationship with alcohol. Did it change your conception of sort of who you were as a man? By stopping drinking and I, I'm, I'm again I'm going out on a limb but previously you'd mentioned right about having this armor straight armor right and I'm not saying that you still have those things or maybe you do I again leave it up to you but certainly I know when I was younger particularly within my male friendship circle you know drinking and being able to drink a lot was that's like a badge of honor right mm. that's that's mm. like very foundational to particularly sort of teenage boys they're how they sort of re relate to each other and rank themselves am amongst each other I'm not saying that you know, as, a, as a grown man, you, you still sort of indulged in those things. But I, I, I wonder the consequences for your, you know, how you identify as a man stopping doing that, whether it had any bearing on that. It's a weird, that's a weird thing. And I haven't really thought about it. It's a good question because I, I actually think it lent into those traditional masculine tropes more because in a way, at the beginning, I was competitive with myself. Yeah. Really competitive. It's like, well, if you, if you let the side down now, you're a fucking failure. Mm. Uh, who, how, you cannot think about drinking. And that was, the, that was the, the real, like, reason at the beginning. I was, like, craving that. Like, I was keeping tally on this app of every day that I'd not drunk. So it was that kind of competitive. It was a little bit self-flagellatory as well. It was a little bit like, you know, you're not good if you start again you're you're worthless if you start again and and there was also that idea like i said about wanting to feel proud of myself i wanted to feel like this kind of pillar and since i've stopped drinking i've almost replaced the time spent doing that not with relaxing but with challenging myself constantly like learning to paint again like running like I bought a piano, so I'm like playing the piano all the time. I'm writing more. And it's like push, 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 push. And it and there is something about this idea of being like a male provider figure pillar in the world that has become more prevalent mm. through stopping drinking, which is weird. Yeah. And it worries me a bit, actually. And I speak to my therapist a little bit about it because it's like, I would just like to be able to just be chilled. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I and, do and, that, and alcohol did do that. Like yeah. I miss, I have to say, one of the biggest things I miss is the enforced like slobbishness of a hangover. Yeah. Where you're like, got an excuse. It's fine. Yeah. I can just lie around in my tracksuit all day Take away. and watch TV and eat takeaway. That does not happen now. Ever. Um, and I miss that a little bit. Yeah, you always will. Yeah. So it's funny, isn't it? Some people say, oh yeah, I just, you know, I miss after a hard day's work, that first pint, I'll never get that back. And I've spoken to other people who are sober now and they say that, or, you know, the lovely bottle of wine. And it's interesting to be like, you know what, actually, I miss, I miss the hangovers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't miss like the crushing anxiety and like <laughs> that feeling of going on to, to work in the morning, crying to listening to fix you on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> like all saggy faced and grey. <laughs> I uh, don't miss that. <laughs> but the Sunday where you're still a little bit drunk and you're yeah. lying on, you know, in your filth, like there's something lovely yeah. about that. I think it'd be, I, yeah, for sure there is, mate. I think I'd miss the bloody Mary. Terry, thank you so much for thank coming Thank you so in. much, Ollie. I've loved talking to you. Yeah, loved talking to you too. Cheers. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.